1: free. And um, just thank you for the fact that you break our chains and you give us that freedom. As we go into our study of your word, I pray that you would just anoint us and give us the right the words, the right uh, concepts, and um, just speak to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Jonah's story is my story um Jonah's story is your story because i think all of us at times have been tempted to run from god from some aspect of of his will maybe our temptation was to run from his moral will and and i think the re, the statistics are just shocking how many people are into pornography just immorality, mental adultery. Maybe our temptation was to run from some aspect of His financial will. And we talked about this last week. How many, what is it, about 80% of the typical church does not give their tithes, which in essence is running from God's financial will. Sometimes we run from His ethical will. We don't do things that are necessarily illegal but they're just not honorable. Or many of us, I believe, are like Jonah, and we're running from God's ministry will. We feel God wants us to help, maybe with kids' ministries or lead a small group, or maybe even be part of the musical. And I know we're well into rehearsals now. Um, but we run. And, and, and we all can come up with excuses. I found that people of my generation, here's the excuse we use. Let somebody else do it. I've served my time. Let someone else younger do it. That's my generation. And by the way, as I, as I read scripture, there's no biblical backing for this excuse. It's my generation. But, but I've also found sometimes that the younger people have excuses as well, and, and their lives are so busy, you know, the kids are playing ball, and we're trying to chase them around everywhere, so many activities. We, we just can't be tied down, which, which leads me to say there's no biblical backing for that excuse either. And by the way, welcome to the Church of God Holiness, where we make you feel good about yourself. <laughs> you know, I think Jonah's story intersects with all of our lives because we're runners. We run from God. Now, up to this point in Jonah chapters one and two, we've zeroed in on two big lessons. The first one was this. You can run from God, but you can't outrun him. You know, eventually God will send a storm or a fish or the law and you'll get busted. Now, God does not do this to pay us back, but it's to win us back. It's to bring us back. And the second big lesson that we've learned so far is God is very generous in his grace, but he's thorough in his discipline. So that's why Jonah was in the fish three days instead of three hours. That's why the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years instead of 40 days. That's why God took Israel into captivity for 70 years instead of seven years. And that is why this gets close to us. That's why a quick sorry to God today doesn't necessarily remove all of the consequences. Sometimes God will be thorough in his discipline, so we will learn our lesson well. Let's go ahead and jump into our scripture reading, and and we're going to pick up with the last verse in Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10 And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, Jonah chapter 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now, let me just review the geographical setting and and show you a map here. Uh, This right here is where Jonah lived. The country of Israel, there's Jerusalem. God called him over here to Nineveh. Uh, that was in, in Assyria, which was about 500 to 550 miles away. But but Jonah said, wait wait a minute, God, these people here, they're jerks. And, and as I've said, they had learned actually how to perfect the art of skinning people alive and keeping them alive for long periods of time. And, and so God said, because these people are bad people, I'm not going to go to Nineveh and he ran over here to Spain or headed to Spain, took, took a boat, headed to Tarshish. Now, as a fellow runner, I have a feeling that when Jonah said no, in his mind, he was thinking, God, I'm still going to serve you. <laughs> you know, it's not like I'm backsliding. It's not like I'm abandoning my faith. It's not like I'm going to quit praying or quit going to church. You know, I'll still read my Bible. I love you, God. But your request is just too radical. It's out of my comfort zone. Well, of course, while, while Jonah was on his way to, to Spain, a storm came up and, 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 and you, know, you know the account and, and uh, they threw him overboard. God sent a fish. The whale spit him out on dry ground. God gave him a second chance. Once again, called him to go to Nineveh. And how do you think Jonah responded the second time? We find that in verse three. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord And went to Nineveh. Now we don't know exactly where the fish spit Jonah up. And of course we don't even know how he was dressed when he came out of the fish. I doubt it was like that right there. But but the Bible says that Jonah was spit onto dry land. Now let, let me just go over this map as well. We don't know. Now this little graphic here says the storm came up here we don't know where it was we know that he left Joppa headed over here to Spain a storm came up somewhere here we don't know where the fish got sick and tired of the preacher and got rid of him but somewhere probably right there now if it had been right there it would have been around 200 miles straight shot to Nineveh if it's right here it's going to be around 500 miles there it's going to be a little longer so we, we don't know exactly where uh, he, he was spit up on, on dry land. Uh, and, and I don't know how fit Jonah was. You know, it was a society where they walked a lot. But if he's like most of us preachers, we'd probably, he'd probably indulge in too much fried chicken. And maybe was a little bit portly and, and wasn't tremendously fit. And, and the territory he had to go through wasn't uh, the Himalayas or it wasn't even the Andean range, range in South America, but it was fairly rough. And so I'm just estimating that the most that Jonah probably could cover would be about 20 miles a day. And for those of you that are hikers, why? and, and I've talked to a couple 20, 25 miles, that's probably on the high side. And so, therefore, if if Jonah was spit up right here where he had around 200 miles to go, it took a couple of weeks possibly. If it was over here, it could have been three, four, five weeks. Who knows? But, but anyway, uh, this means that Jonah was probably on the road by himself at least a couple of weeks and possibly a good deal more. Well, when, when Jonah finally got to the city of Nineveh, and by the way, Nineveh was in the area that today we call Iraq... But when Jonah walked into Nineveh, he walked into this pagan and wicked city that did not know anything about God. They did not know anything about the law of Moses. They did not understand that a prophet like Jonah was to be God's mouthpiece. This was a wicked, wicked culture that served idols. Well, as Jonah walked into Nineveh, he probably arrived as a character that wasn't dressed for success. When he was thrown overboard, I doubt if he had taken the suitcase of clothes with him. Uh, He had probably been wearing those same clothes for several weeks. Probably hadn't been using deodorant. Now, this is probably a TMI. Do you know what a TMI is? Too much information. But anyway, when I do a major mountain climb, for example, a year and a half ago when I climbed uh, Kilimanjaro in Africa, it was an eight-day climb. And at the end of eight days, I could hardly stand to be on the same side of the mountain with myself. I mean, it was really bad. And and so Jonah probably didn't smell very good. There might have been even still the remnant of a fishy smell about him. Not to mention that Jonah's skin might have still been bleached a a pasty white. Plus, it appears that Jonah arrived in Nineveh with a chip on his shoulder the size of an extra large pizza. Because as you read Jonah chapter 3, and especially chapter 4, you can tell that Jonah still didn't want to be there. He still couldn't stand the Ninevites. He was still cranky and... And I guess after what he had been through, maybe you could cut him just a little bit of slack. But his attitude seemed to be, let me preach to those pagan jerks. Yeah. Uh, and then I'll get out of town as fast as I can. Maybe on the way out of town, if I'm lucky, I'll get to see the fireworks as God brings judgment upon the Ninevites. And maybe on his Twitter feed, Joan even tweeted, hashtag bring the fire. But nevertheless, at least to Jonah's credit, in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. Now, what does it mean that a visit required three days? Well, that was describing the size of the city. Nineveh was no small town. This was not a podunk-wide place in the road in rural Assyria. This was not a Roscoe. It wasn't a Cedar Springs. It wasn't a Shell City. It wasn't Eldreda Springs. And it wasn't even a Nevada. Nineveh was a city of 120,000 people, pretty close to the population of Springfield. And the Bible says that it would have taken three days of hard walking from daylight to dusk, to cover the city. Let's keep reading verse four on the first day. Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Now, Something that's very significant is Jonah didn't arrive in Nineveh and take some time to learn the culture and mingle with the people and form some relationships. In fact, he went against everything I've ever taught in a personal evangelism course. The Bible says as he walked into the city limits he started in, his message was straightforward. It was basically turn or burn or get right or get left. Or someone said, get sanctified or get french fried. (laughs) He didn't necessarily say it in those those words, but but he preached that judgment was coming to the city in 40 days. And frankly, it was not a very seeker-sensitive message. You would think that Jonah, going to a new culture, could have used a more gentle approach, emphasizing the love of God. But he didn't. Now, let's hit the pause button for a moment. And let's try to imagine that happening here in Eldorado Springs or... Nevada or wherever you come from, um, let's imagine a strange guy walking into town. And let's say that we find out he's from an enemy nation. And so this is not a racially motivated statement, but because of what's in the mo- uh, news, let's just say that he's from North Korea. So he comes into town and, and starts walking our streets and immediately begins to shout, 40 days from now, Eldredge Springs will be destroyed. And if you don't turn, then you will burn. And, and you need to pray to this God that we don't know anything about and ask him to have mercy on you and forgive you. Question, how would you respond? I know how I would respond. I would say, this guy is nuts. He's a creep. Make sure our kids don't get very close to him. He's off his rocker probably off his meds. He needs to be put in an institution for 72 hours. Now, you might have put stock into what he was saying. I don't think I would have. But crazy enough, the Bible says that the people of Nineveh listened to this complete stranger from an enemy nation and they took him seriously. And the Bible says they turned to God. Verse 5, the Ninevites believed God. And to show that they were serious, it says they declared a fast. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Which, putting on sackcloth was a sign of humility as well as sorrow. And and what's so interesting, fascinating to me, is that this sorrow reached the highest levels of government. Because in verse 6 it says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now I've got to ask this question. Why did the people of Nineveh take Jonah seriously? I mean, I already said I wouldn't have. Jonah was an outsider. Nobody knew him. He was part of the enemy. So, why did 120,000 people, plus the king, the high-level government officials, why did they take him seriously? Well, you want to know? The quick answer, and it's the right answer, is that God had been preparing their hearts. But having said that, I have found that God often uses circumstances to prepare hearts. Now, he doesn't have to. I mean, he can just reach down and and miraculously prepare hearts. But many times, God will allow situations, and as we talked about last week, even allow distress to be part of the process of changing people's hearts and minds. Let me mention three things. And and this is what we call extra-biblical material. This isn't found in the pages of the Bible, but this is found in the pages of history. And, and, And so... I believe these are things that God allowed to happen to help prepare hearts for Jonah's message. And I I found this to be super, super interesting. First thing, it's a fact that during this actual time period, there were three very powerful tribes that had joined forces, and they were headed towards Nineveh to attack. And and when Jonah made his way into the city of Nineveh, these three tribes that had joined forces were within about 100 miles of the city. And so when Jonah started shouting, hey, you're going to be destroyed if you don't repent, it's very possible that they began to wonder, hmm, is he referring to this advancing army of three tribes that's getting closer and closer? It'd make you think. Well, add to that a second event that that, that made the Ninevites open to the message. History also records that during the same time period, there had been two plagues. I mean, major plagues that that had swept through Nineveh and the surrounding area. And, and, And these plagues had brought a lot of suffering and heartache to the people. And so when Jonah began saying, judgment's coming, the devastation that those plagues had caused was fresh on their minds and... They felt a little bit vulnerable, and so they had to begin connecting the dots and wondering if those plagues had something to do with the judgment that Jonah was talking about. But then there's another event that, 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 that had to make the people open to the turn-or-burn message of, of of Jonah. History records right around this time, and, and, and this is just so fascinating because I love this. Uh, history records that right around this time frame there was a total solar eclipse. Now, you know, astronomically and, and scientifically, we understand an eclipse. Of course, we had front row seating just a, a, a few months ago. We were privileged to pretty much, uh, you know, witness that, uh, a total solar eclipse. And, you know, in, in, in the weeks preceding that that eclipse... Then the networks over and over and over, they were explaining what was going to happen. They'd show diagrams and, you know, the moon coming, and all of that kind of stuff and covered it up and, and, uh, you know, we, we all bought those funny looking glasses so that we could look at the eclipse and, and not lose our eyesight. And, you know, America was educated to the eclipse, but yet even with our scientific knowledge and. Still, every time something like this happens, you know, whether it's an eclipse or or a supermoon or a blood moon or a meteor shower, you know, it always ignites talk of, do you think this could be the end of the world? You know, even with our scientific knowledge, even understanding astronomy, how it all works, it still raises a lot of discussion do you think this is the beginning of the end? But imagine this happening 2,750 years ago, way before ABC or Fox News or CNN, where weeks in advance they educated us. But but trying to picture going about your day in the middle of the day, all of a sudden, it starts to go dark. Can you imagine the nervousness, the uncertainty, and the questions? What's going on? Is this the end of the world? So I wonder if God had been preparing the way through the threat of these three tribes coming in, those two major plagues, the total solar eclipse. I wonder if God had orchestrated all of that so that when Jonah walked into the city limits and started shouting, Turn or burn! The people actually listened. And they not only listened, but they took it to heart. Because the king... In verse 7 says, Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. So, so the king issued a fast and said, we've got to call on this God and, and we don't know anything about Him, but, but here's a warning and maybe in His mercy, He will turn from His anger and let us be saved. And because God is generous in His grace, verse 10, wow, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the, the destruction he had threatened. Now, frankly, I wish the Bible would have given us more details. This was an amazing revival that broke out. And, and even though we don't know for sure, but it, it does appear that possibly the entire city of Nineveh turned to God. In fact, I, I I've read, just done some extra reading and we don't know for sure, but... Some scholars suggest that the surrounding areas also turn to God. I've read numbers as much as 500,000 people that turn to God. I mean, we don't know. But the Bible says that the city of Nineveh turned to God. Now, let's try to tie all of this together by making a couple of observations. Here's the first one. Revival is not random. You know, when revival comes to a community or a church or an individual, it's not a random event. It's not like God rolls the dice and says, okay, if I roll a seven, then I'm going to give revival to the First Baptist Church downtown. Or if I roll a 10, it goes to the Methodist Church. Or if I roll snake eyes, then that's the magic formula for revival to come to the Church of God Holiness, to come to the Church of God Holiness. Revival doesn't work that way. It's not random And in the span of a a couple of short verses, I see in our text four things that took place that created an atmosphere where God could send revival. First of all, we see in verse 7 that there was fasting. It said to not let any man or even animal have anything to eat or drink. Now, that's serious fasting. And, and, And I... You know, I have a regular routine, of uh, weekly routine of fasting just in my own personal life, but I've never made my animals fast. And that's probably not something that's required. If you, uh, you, know, if you fast, you don't have to make your cows or dogs or cats fast. Uh, maybe cats, but, but the rest of the animals, you don't need to make them fast. Um, but when the king declared a fast for everyone and everything, it shows how serious he was. You know what I love? I love food. And I think a few of you do as well. When we give up something as precious as food, it's an indicator that we're serious. Secondly, I noticed there was humility. They they put on sackcloth. And and again, I'm not sure that God literally wants us to walk around with sackcloth. But in our society that has become arrogant and prideful, we need to realize that before God we are nothing. And, and if we become so fortunate to become something before man, we need to realize it's only because God was generous with His mercy. Thirdly, it says they prayed. And, and the NIV text says, it, it says they, they called urgently on God. This wasn't a casual prayer like ours. and You, you know, can I tell you how, I, how you pray? Do you want to know how I know how you pray? It's because it's the way I pray. Here, here are our prayers. God, bless us, guide us, keep us, protect us, use us. The Bible says they urgently called on God. There was a sense of desperation. And I was wondering this past week, you know, if we had the same urgency with our prayers, I wonder if God wouldn't bring revival to us. And then the last element for revival that I will mention is the matter of obedience. Verse 10 says, they turn from their evil ways and I was thinking that, you know, we can fast, we can humble ourselves, we can pray, but if our lives do not change, then we have not experienced true revival. The Holy Spirit is in the business of change. Old things pass away. Everything becomes new. And so if you've ever wondered, how can we experience revival? I believe here's part of the answer. Fasting. Humility. Prayer obedience. Now, if the story ended with Jonah chapter three, you could kind of put a bow on it and say, that is so cool. You know, God called Jonah. Jonah said, no, ran away. God sent a storm of fish. God gave Jonah a second chance. This time Jonah said yes. And he preached and people repented and there was revival. And and Jonah could have said, you know, I'm so, so glad that I went and it all worked out. And you know, isn't God good? And I'm good too. And And then today we would have probably added one more verse at the end of chapter 3. We would have added, and they all lived happily ever after. And then I could have said on this positive and upbeat note, we now conclude our series, The Runner, and let's all stand and give God a clap offering, a praise offering, and we'll be dismissed. Isn't it good to follow God? But this isn't one of those stories where they all lived happily ever after. Yes, there was revival. Yes, the city of Nineveh turned to God. But that leads me to my second observation. My first was this, revival is not random. And to guide us through this second observation, we're going to skip over the last chapter of Jonah, and don't worry, we'll be back next week. But I want us to turn over two books. You have Jonah, Micah, and then Nahum, So turn over to Nahum. Nahum covers a time period of approximately a hundred years after Jonah. And so as you turn to Nahum, let me give you my second observation. Revival today does not guarantee revival tomorrow. Now, most of us here remember a time when a church or a camp meeting or a college experienced revival and I wasn't around, but I understand that Herman Camp, back many years ago, had some amazing times of revival. And and I think there are a few in this church that are actually products of that revival. They came to know Christ during that time. And then we had an amazing time of revival at this church 20 20 years ago or so. And, And I personally had never seen anything like it before, and I haven't seen anything like it since. And there are several in this church that are a product of that revival. And so as pastor, it's natural, and I think it's natural for all of us to look with uh, look back with fond memories on those good old days. And, and, and I think it's healthy to a certain extent to remember those days. But please know, you can't live off of past revivals. Those great revivals of the past do not guarantee revival today, nor do they guarantee revival tomorrow. I want us to fast forward about a hundred years from this incredible revival in Nineveh where 120,000 people turned to God. And I want us to look at the rest of the story. And sad to say, we will find out that as Lee Iacocca, the former CEO of Chrysler who engineered a turnaround for Chrysler back in the 70s, he said, yesterday ended last night. And the revival that took place in Nineveh drastically ended. Listen to some of the scriptures in Nahum that, that, that describe Nineveh a generation or at most two generations after Jonah's revival meeting. Nahum chapter 1 verse 11. Who is this king of yours who dares to plot evil against the Lord? That's so different than where we just read where, where the king issued a fast for people and animals. And, and here the king of Nineveh was plotting evil against the Lord. Here's another verse that gives us a glimpse of what happened after the revival. Nahum chapter 3 verse 1. How terrible it will be for Nineveh, the city of murder and lies. So so Nineveh, just a generation or two later, had become a city of bloodshed and violence, dishonesty. And here's another verse. Verse 4, Nahum chapter 3. All because of the wanton lust of a harlot... Alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. So there you have immorality, you have prostitution, you have witchcraft that's taken over the city. So within a generation or two, the people of Nineveh had forgotten Jonah's message of judgment. They had drifted back into their old ways. Please know that God is interested in faithfulness. When it comes to our walk with God, starting fast doesn't impress God. What impresses God is finishing well. The old story about the rabbit and the turtle racing carries a pretty powerful spiritual lesson. The rabbit started fast, stopped to take a nap. The turtle was slow but steady, won the race. God prefers steadiness over fast and flashy starts. And I've seen some people that get, they get excited about God and, and then will go on a sprint for Jesus. But it's not long before their interest has waned, they've pretty much spiritually pulled over to the side of the road. It's okay to celebrate the good old days. But the good old days do not determine how you will end up your spiritual race. We can talk about the revivals that we've been associated with in the past. But what about today, present tense? We can talk, talk about all the people that we've seen come to know Christ in the past, but what about today, present tense? We can talk about the saints uh, how they used to have a glow on their face and uh, faces and they would run and shout as, as as the glory of the Lord would just descend and that's wonderful. What about today? Present tense. And if you will continue studying Nineveh's history, you will find that not too long after Nahum wrote his book, Nineveh and all of Assyria, they were destroyed. They were overrun by the armies of Babylon. And since that time, 2,500 years or so, Assyria is only mentioned in the pages of history. Now, so I don't uh, totally end with gloom and doom, let me mention one really cool exception. While as a whole, Assyria completely disappeared off the map, there were a few Assyrians.
0: <laughs>
1: Even after Babylon conquered them, they hung on to their belief in God, Jehovah. Jehovah. They settled at the base of the Kurdish mountains in Iraq. And and, and even today, there are a group of Christians there in Iraq that can indirectly, of course, because it's many years back, but they trace their heritage back to the revival there at Nineveh. So though Nineveh and Assyria completely disintegrated, and you practically find no lasting evidence of this revival. Yet there's a small remnant that hung on to their faith. And they passed it generation to generation to generation. Despite wicked kings. Despite wicked societies. Despite a country that is completely Islam, Muslim, Muslim. Still just a small group of Christians that say our heritage goes back to the revival at Nineveh. And what's so encouraging about this to me is that it goes to show that we can hang on to our faith in a wicked society. I don't know what's going to happen to America. America. You know, the America that we know today is changing. Seems like that our spiritual foundation is crumbling. You know, we've heard a lot about political correctness, but I don't worry so much about political correctness. I worry about religious correctness, where we begin having to try to align ourselves with everybody else But these Ninevites in Iraq, they encourage me that regardless of what happens, if America goes by the wayside, if America succumbs to a generic religious society, we can still be true and faithful to Jesus Christ. And with God's help, I want to be one of those. And with God's grace, by God's grace, I will be one of those. So this morning as we wrap up our service, um, can I urge you just to stay faithful? Would you stay faithful to Jesus? Don't be swayed by what comes, the new philosophies, new ideas religious correctness be faithful and honestly I don't care how fast you start how fast you run I I really think what matters is how well you finish can we just determine by God's grace we're going to finish well can we do that today we're going to finish well Would you just stand? And I want to pray. You know, I want to pray for me. I want to pray for you. And that God would help us to run a good race. Fight the good fight of faith. Because there is a crown waiting for us, but we got to finish well. We got to finish well. Maybe before we pray, heads bowed, eyes closed. Is there anybody that would say, God has really spoken to me today. Just pray for me. Would you pray for me? Thank you. I see your hand. I see your hand. Anybody else? Pray for me. Thank you. Anybody else? We're not going to take long, but maybe there's someone that wants to come forward and kneel at the altar, kneel at these steps. We don't embarrass you here. It's just kind of a low-key thing. We have some people gather around. Just pray with you. That's it. Is there anybody you would like to come and do that and maybe receive Christ or... Just wait a couple of minutes here.
0: <clears throat>
1: Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your account and your word, what, a, what an amazing book of the Bible. Father, I I pray that you would give us revival here at this church, beginning with the pastors and spreading to the membership in this community. Lord, this week I pray that there would be just some prayers of desperation. God, I pray that there would be just humility Lord, I pray that, Lord, there would be fasting. Lord, I pray that in our hearts we would just meet the conditions where you would say, this is an atmosphere where I can bring my spirit. Lord, I pray that you would help us as we live our lives. Our country is changing and Lord, in some ways, it's a good change, but in a lot of ways, it's not a good change. And Father, I pray that instead of just being doomsday people, that we would actually live our lives and that we would be light. We would be salt. Lord, that we would bring flavor to this dark society. And God, I pray that you would help us to finish well. It's easy to start. Lord, we've all made starts. I As I talked last week, I recommitted my life to Christ so many times. So many times we you know we we've started, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to finish well. Let us finish well that Lord when we take our last breath that we would have given our given it our very best. God, I I pray that you would help us to make sure that our, our hearts are clean and our minds are pure. So, Lord, as we go about this week, let us be found faithful. Let us be found faithful, O God. Thank you for these lessons that we've learned from this amazing book of Jonah. And, Lord, prepare our hearts for next week, because next week we're going to talk about the ugly underbelly of the church. Lord, as we uh, really begin to kind of sort through Jonah's life, and when he left, when he left that great revival we really see where his heart was and father i think that speaks to the church and so i pray that you would just prepare our hearts for this lesson and god as we read jonah chapter four that and not just read it but that we would study it that you would even now begin just laying on our hearts and minds those lessons that we need to learn thank you lord that despite the fact that your discipline is thorough yet your Grace is so very generous. Thank you. We love you. We ask these favors in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And everybody said, Amen. You're dismissed.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Morning Message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.